I think that this is going to be one of uh, probably one of my favorite interviews that I've done in a while, just based off of the content that you shared with me. Uh, but before we jump into all of that, do you want to give folks just a quick intro about you, a little bit about your background and about Olivine Marketing? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Rachel Lambert. My friends call me Ray, so you can do that as well. I have a very odd background, as a lot of product marketers do. Um, I started my career in finance. I studied finance in college. I did custodial banking. I fucking hated it. I moved from Boston to San Francisco to try to break into tech. I got this like finance slash operations manager role. Liked it better, but still just fish trying to climb a tree. I'm a much more creative person. I love doing like very divergent projects and finance can be very repetitive, very redundant. Um, even at like a fast paced startup where you're like doing fundraising rounds and stuff, it can, it's just not my, not my bag. Um, so ended up switching um, into product marketing. I got a job at Intercom, um, which was a miracle. Thanks Matt Hodges for hiring me because I had like no marketing experience. Um, but I ended up having a great run there. I was there for almost three years. I launched two products from like zero to full revenue launch. After that, I was head of uh, marketing at a fintech startup, which I thought made a lot of sense on paper. But again, <laughs> just was like not quite a good fit for me. Um, so while I was at the same time, I was in the process of moving from San Francisco to New York. And I was like, it's kind of a mess. I'll just freelance for a while just until I figure something out. I assumed I would, you know, try to get some PMM job at like Spotify or Instagram or like whatever, you know, basically consumer tech company was in New York. But um, within my first year of freelancing, I made 192 grand. I took 1 p.m. yoga classes and I grocery shopped in the morning while everyone else was commuting to work. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to ever go back in-house ever again. Very uh, nice. So kept, on, kept on freelancing and then eventually joined forces uh, all of them with my co-founder, Ashley. We are a product marketing agency um, that works with B2B SaaS. So yeah, that's me. I got my start basically freelancing, like diving in head first. So I love helping people make the switch. I think this is really timely because, you know, just the way that the economy is right now, all of the unfortunate layoff announcements that are happening right now. I know that a lot of people are evaluating just, okay, what, what other opportunities are out there for me? Even if I'm not like without a job or if I wasn't laid off, like maybe now is a good time to just start evaluating yeah. some of these other opportunities for maybe some side income. And so um, let's start from the top and just like evaluating opportunities based on different company stages. And so I know that you kind of break things off into uh, three stages, right? So like early stage, which is pre-seed, series A, growth stage, series B to D, and then uh, the enterprise stage, which is series D, IPO, private equity. Um, and so why don't you walk us through kind of how you approach freelancing for each of those different kind of companies? Working with different stages of companies as a consultant, like it's a totally different bag depending on what kind of company you work with. And I've, I haven't worked in any consumer products. So, you know, take this all with like a B2B lens, grain of salt. Um, but, you know, pre-seed series A companies, um, they, if you're working with them as a consultant, you're probably going to be helping with things like product naming or even company naming, positioning, messaging, like finding that initial product market fit, you know, customer acquisition. You'll probably be talking to customers, doing some customer relationship stuff. 
um, the opportunities are that you can have a lot of impact on the org and you'll have a tight relationship with product and sales and probably leadership. The challenges are that you have like no budget. Everything's going to be DIY and scope is going to change like constantly. So you have to be like really flexible with these like founders and these early stage companies because like literally <laughs> they change their mind, like they change their underwear, like everything's going to be constantly changing. So that's kind of the, the, the focus opportunities and the challenges at the early stage side. Um, I'd say in the growth stage, you know, once you're past series A, I'm calling this like series B through D, you'll probably be partnering with like demand gen or growth, probably be helping with product launches, but you'll have like some other people, like maybe there's a content marketer, maybe there's a PR person. You'll actually have more data at your fingertips. So you'll be able to do some things about that, whereas early stage is very instinctual. You'll be probably have existing customers. So you'll be working on cross-selling and upselling and reducing churn. And then some of the opportunities are there's going to be more resources for executing. So you'll be able to do some more like unique, splashy, like creative work. Um, you'll work closely, you know, with product and it'll still be strategic and core to the business. Um, and then this is also a great place to like grow your own personal brand, like in and out of the org. You know, early stage startups are really great experience, but no one's really heard of them. So it's kind of a trade-off. Like, you know, I've worked with some really big companies like Meta, ServiceNow, Twilio, like really big publicly traded companies. And while like those kind of get the most interest, I can tell you, I definitely didn't learn the most while I was there. So it's like kind of interesting what people's perception of value versus like actual value of experiences. And then the challenges in this growth stage are, you know, where does PMM fit or how do you as a consultant fit within this like bigger org? Um, you'll have bigger campaign coordination to do. Um, but you won't probably have a lot of control over what's happening. Um, you know, when I launched a products at Intercom, there's like 65 direct stakeholders, it's really, <laughs> really big circus. Um, and then keeping things aligned when so much is going on is really difficult. And then at the enterprise stage, if you're consulting or working in-house too, I'm considering this series D plus IPO. This is going to be more focused on segmentation, verticalization, acquisitions. Um, I once worked with a company that had gone through 14 acquisitions in less than two years. And so just trying to unite those sales forces, unite that positioning and messaging. Um, there's going to be a lot of sales training, a lot of other employee training probably breaking into new markets, probably trying to do some localization, like translations into new languages. Opportunities here at big companies is that you have great brand recognition. It'll be well-funded, well-staffed, probably have more work-life balance, like no one's going to be calling you late at night. They do have big budgets. I would say they don't necessarily pay more per hour, but they're more comfortable with longer-term engagements. So, you know, a early stage startup just wants to do something for like one month and then a big company is happy to sign something for eight plus months. Um, challenges here, bureaucracy makes work, everything slow. I mean, oh my God, so slow. Um, legal has to see everything, like even emails, like marketing emails have to be approved by legal. Oh, really? um, oh my gosh. Yeah, it makes you want to kill yourself. And then uh, collaboration is just harder and can really be like disjointed campaign work and yeah, disjoint, disjointed work across the board. Okay, so that's a that's a great kind of breakdown of different kind of companies and like opportunities, challenges with each of them. I found that like my personal sweet spot is the growth stage area, like series B to D. I find that that's a good sweet spot of like exciting work. You feel like there's some traction, some momentum, um, but not everything. I mean, there are some fires, don't get me wrong, but not everything is like... I don't even know how to describe it. Not, not everything is a fire at the end of the day. Yeah. And you don't have people yeah. typically calling you like at, at late 
hours or like anything like that. Typically, it's a little bit more reasonable. What would you say is probably the best stage for someone who's brand new to freelancing in PMM? Like which which stage would you think would make most sense for people to start or to start targeting? Yeah, I would say earlier in that growth stage. So, you know, I find that working directly with a founder at a really early stage company, like it can just be pretty daunting. And then like later growth stage companies, there's just like a lot of, there can become start like a lot of bureaucracy and leadership that you need. So it kind of depends on your own maturity level and like age too, I think, you know, if you're 22 years old and, you know, you're trying to work with this founder who's like in their mid thirties and is just super experienced, like, I don't know if you're going to be as comfortable, like bringing strategy to the table and whatnot. And so like, that's fine. Maybe you just come in as like an IC and you're, you know, you're just like handling the project management and the copy for like a product launch or something like that. But if you're really kind of digging in and doing positioning and messaging and super strategic work, you might find yourself like intimidated or overwhelmed or feeling like it's hard to contribute and impact. And then bigger companies, like there can be a lot of politics that you're not like quite aware of, like, you know, things like per my last email and (laughs) You know, I will say bigger companies, they can, when you're negotiating as a consultant, they can like surprise you by like having a meeting to like talk about the project and then surprise procurement's there. And like, they're, you know, working you through like the 28, you know, negotiation tactics and you're uh-huh. just like, well, I'm negotiating with a terrorist. Like I didn't realize uh-huh. what I was, you know, you just feel like a bunny in a snake, but you're like, oh no. Um, yep. So, you know, I, I would say like, series B if I had to pick. Right. 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 I think you, you kind of pointed on something that I think is really important and just kind of knowing yourself in this situation. I don't think that there's one specific spot that's going to work for everyone. Like for example, um, when I was really early on in my career and I was first starting at zoom info, I was not prepared to have very strategic conversations with like our CEO. Like I just, I just didn't have the tools to do that. Yeah. And defending your ideas. And it's like, yeah. maybe you have good instincts, but you, you have a hard time debating. Exactly. Debate. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. But you know, I did have ideas and um, I was much more equipped to talk through those ideas with other, you know, maybe at this point, it probably would have been like those early, early stage, like pre-seed series A type companies. And so that would have been great for me at that time. Now I feel a little bit more well-equipped to properly convey like my ideas and I'm a little bit more well-equipped for like those series B, D kind of companies. And so just knowing yourself, knowing like, kind of like where you would perform best is probably what I would recommend as well. Yeah. And I think it's also like, who's your kind of point of contact? Like, are you working with another product marketer or are you working directly with the CEO? Are you working with the VP of product or did a CRO, like a chief revenue officer bring you in those, you know, that's kind of different. Like I've come into companies before where they don't have any product marketing. They have like a great product team, but they just have never really somehow built out a product marketing team. So now you're kind of like in all these esoteric product conversations or you know, there's a well-built out product marketing team, but like the leaders going on maternity leave and they just like wanted some extra muscle to come in. Like that's a very different bag or yeah, it, it really depends. Like it's so nuanced. So I almost feel like it's useless to say, but it can be very different depending on the type of role you're partnering with. Okay. Let's jump into like either attracting your first client or trying to close your first client. So first off, um, I think people are going to have a hard time, at least 
I remember when I was first thinking about freelancing, I wasn't sure like, should I be the one to reach out to people or should I like put more effort into posting like on LinkedIn or like writing blogs or like sharing like, hey, I'm open and like waiting for inbound uh, like requests or should I like go on to like Fiverr or Upwork? Like there's a lot of different no, ways to like get, work. okay, that. perfect. Okay, so no Fiverr, <laughs> no Upwork, everyone. So how, how would you balance that? How would you balance like trying to put work into getting more inbound versus like reaching yeah. out to people that you think would value your work? So when I initially, you know, I kind of went cold turkey fast. Like I didn't really, I was just, it wasn't a good fit where I was. So I was just like, I gave two weeks notice and I was like, I'm available for freelancing. Like it wasn't this long like runway build up. And I really thought I would just do one project while I looked for a real job and then that would be it. So I wasn't necessarily trying to build up all this pipeline. But um, while I was at Intercom, they had this like requirement that everyone has to write, I don't know if it was like twice a year, or four times a year, a blog post. And, you know, I wasn't like that excited about writing this blog post, but I wrote, you know, I wrote it because I had to write it. And so I wrote it about launching the Help Center product or maybe it was launching operator. I can't remember which one. Um, but for a long time, uh, it ranked number one on Google for product marketing. This was like way back in like 2016. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. And then Dave, who I know you had recently, he wrote one for Drift, which, uh, unseated me because I didn't know. It. <sighs> Damn it, Dave. Yeah. Damn it, Dave. <laughs> that even after I left the company, that blog post fed me for like a year because my Twitter and my LinkedIn were connected to my author profile. And people would be like, hey, like, I read your blog post about like taking new products to market. Like, can you come do that here? And I'd be like, yeah, man. And then I even contracted, consulted at Envoy. And when I got there, they had all my templates that had been linked from that blog post. So I'm like, yeah, you guys are on the right track. Like now you just need someone to actually do it. <laughs> um, so I definitely recommend like, if you're at a company and they're like, hey, you gotta write this blog post, like just write it. Like you never know <laughs> which pieces of content will feed you in the future. It definitely helps if you're not moonlighting to just be like, I'm available like for hire. If you're trying to kind of secretly moonlight, I do think that's a little harder. You have to put it more like in the DMs and email people. Really like your network will be super valuable. Um, you know, if you've worked at a shit show company, that means everyone left and now your network is like 10 times bigger than if you'd worked at like, you know, a happy, healthy grown-up company where everyone stays for a really long time, then your network's smaller. I would say, you know, being helpful, writing content on LinkedIn, like LinkedIn influencers weren't really like that much of a thing back then. Here's like the comparison. So Dave Gerhardt, he started at Drift after I started at Intercom. He has like 120,000 LinkedIn followers and I like 3,000. So like that just shows you <laughs> how much, if you put some actual effort in and do it, like you can actually really grow. If, you, if you're like me and <laughs> didn't do it, then you've just been sleeping at the wheel. Um, another one, I got a lot of my first clients through recruiter, like not, not when re people were recruiting via recruiters, but like if the hiring manager DM'd me on LinkedIn, I wouldn't say right away that I was only interested in consulting. I would be like, Hey, I'm not actively looking, but yeah, I would totally take a job interview with Twilio. Cause like they, they're awesome. Then I would spend most of the interview, like enrolling them in my product marketing philosophy. Mm. And then at the very end, I would be like, so I wasn't really planning on going in-house. Like, would you be open to a consulting gig? And usually if you say that right off the bat, they're like, no way. Cause they just, they think they need someone in-house. 
but then when they've met you and they've heard your ideas and they're like, you know, this person can start like next week and we can just like get this ball rolling while I do this very long in-depth in-house project, then I find people are more open to it. But you, it can't be a recruiter because recruiters, like they're just so extrinsically motivated. They only get paid if you get hired as a full-time employee. They don't get any commission if you're a contractor. Oh. Don't bother trying to like convert a recruiter into a con- contracting role because they just will completely ignore you. But if it's the hiring manager, then yeah. Got you it. Can convert that. The next thing I want to talk about is actually closing that first client. So let's say you, you are talking with, you know, it, could be the hiring manager or whoever reaches out to you. You're talking about uh, the opportunity. What are some things that uh, that are, are really important to keep in mind? Like like proposals, hours versus projects, like all of those kinds of things. How, how yeah. would you recommend people navigate those conversations? Yeah. So at the beginning, I would recommend shorter term projects, like three months. Um, if I know it can be tempting if you're hungry to be like, oh, I'm scared of where my work's going to come from. Let me just like close out six months worth of business because that can feel like you're hedging your bets. But you might immediately find that your market rate that you started at was too low. And then you're stuck working at this discount for six months. So typically if someone's working with you for three months and it's going well, they'll want to, you know, they you can easily turn that into a renewal. And even in the proposal, you can say, you know, this is a three month minimum agreement, but it auto renews month to month with 30 day and with a 30 day written cancellation. So like you can kind of bake in the longer term aspect of it if you want, but then even then you'd be kind of like locked in at that market rate. Cause like I started at, I don't know, like 90 an hour. And then I quickly found that I was able to get like over 120, 130, even 150. So that, you know, that was a long time ago too. So that was in 2018. So I definitely recommend like not locking yourself into a rate that maybe just feels low. Um, do, you, do you mind if I, so I want to ask one clarifying question really quick about that. Like when, when you're dealing with contracts and like the 30 day written notice, all that kind of stuff, the thing that initially comes into my head is like, okay, there's probably like some legal hoops that I have to like, make sure make sense. Otherwise, like no matter what I put in the contract, they'll be like, no, like I'll just, not do that or whatever. So do you typically like, do you use a template when you're putting together contracts or do you like hire like a lawyer to look, look over this kind of stuff or like, how, how does that all work? Yeah. I'll, ask me after this and I'll like dig up a proposal template and I'll like take out the details and we'll like circulate it somehow. I don't okay. think you need a lawyer. Lawyers are really good at making themselves seem like they're needed but you don't need them. Okay, um, cool. Good to know. You know, I mean, definitely if someone screws you over and doesn't pay you, then like try to lawyer up or something. But yeah, I just feel like the person you're contracting for will have a lawyer and they'll probably send you like their MSA, like their service agreement and your scope of work will be like pasted into the bottom of it. And you'll need to read that carefully. We can talk separately about like things to look out for, but okay. like you don't need a lawyer. I mean, it's just like, this is what's the scope of work. Like this is what's in, this is what's out. So I'm usually clear with people. I'm like, Hey, look, I do these types of things, positioning, messaging, product launches, sales enablement. I don't do like ad channels. Like, I don't know how much money you should spend on ads or where you should spend it. I don't have any relationships with PR. I can help you write like a very basic press release, but like, I don't know any journalists that we can call to like land you in TechCrunch. Sorry. Also no one, it's hard to get TechCrunch articles these days. <laughs> 
And like, I can do some basic SEO when we're like building out a product landing page, but like, I'm not an SEO expert. So I like to be very clear about what I don't do just as much as what I do so that there aren't misaligned expectations. I mean, I feel like that is the whole thing of consulting is like the hard part is not whatever thing you're doing. It's the managing expectations (laughs) is the hard part. Anytime something comes up with like a client, that's like what's going, that's the crux of what's going on. It's not the actual work. I would also, you know, if you're you're doing in your proposal, like figure out what your time commitment is like. And, and um, if you're doing something based on hours, which I kind of recommend at the beginning, you know, I, I see a lot of people talking about like, oh, you should do like project-based pricing. It's like, that's really good for widgets. Like if you are writing a blog post and it's all very straightforward, but if scope is changing, if priorities are changing, if you really don't know what's going on and you do a project-based scope, like unless you really are good at scoping that, you're just not going to know and you'll probably end up operating at a loss for your hourly rate. So I know some people are, I don't know. I think that only works well if you have like a really tight process. And so time commitment, you know, I like to make sure like, Hey, if I'm working with you 20 hours a week, I'm retaining, you're retaining me for 20 hours a week. It's not zero this week, zero next week, zero the following week. And then 80 (laughs) like that. It's like, use it or lose it. Like I'm carving out this time. I'm saying no to other clients for this time, but you can't just like drag your feet and then like crunch it all at once. Like that's not how that works. I like to be clear about availability and response times. Like how quickly am I going to be responding? Um, You know, not answering slacks at midnight. These are my working hours. Um, And being really aligned on time zones, we're all remote these days and that's totally fine, but like agree on overlapping windows. Like if they're in SF and you're in New York, you know, but I see people like, you know, they're in Portugal or they're in Germany and they like think they're going to work SF hours. And like, you just have to be realistic about if that's happening Mm -hmm. Uh, because that can lead to a lot of frustration. If someone thinks that you're going to be responding that day and then you're not because it's like, you're already in bed. Um, And then be really clear in your proposal about fee and payment schedules. Like what is the fee? What is the minimum fee? Like if they cancel early, like what do they owe you? And then what's the payment schedule? So like when, when is invoicing being sent? When is it going to be paid by? Um, you probably have to do net 30. Um, personally, if people invoice me and they say like do upon receipt, they just seem super junior because like I run a whole like business of 20 people and we have like an accounting process where it's like, it gets loaded. It gets like approved in bill.com. It goes through two layers of reviews and then mm-hmm. like it gets batch by my bookkeeper and like I don't have a full-time bookkeeper so she's not just like 40 hours a week you know doing one she's batching her tasks so you know whenever a freelancer is like you have to pay me like right this second I'm like no you don't run a real business (laughs) if you think that like we're just waiting around to like mail individual checks that's not how it works Oh, that's so, so that's really interesting because I, I previously thought that that was the way to go to avoid like doing free work almost and so that's good to keep in mind yeah, if you want to be paid sooner, invoice sooner. Like it's net 30, but like invoice at the start of the project, not at the end. Okay. Got the it. Project. But like some people will like wait till the very end or even like after the very end, like they'll delay and then they want to be paid instantly. And I'm just like, I feel like five layers, the five things have to happen before the mm-hmm. bills get set. So okay. it makes you seem very junior if you don't understand that these like how these things work. And then and so, if you don't understand how to send an invoice, like Google that shit. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say, okay, cool. That was, that was going to be my next question. I was about to say, okay, like when it comes, there's like 
contracts, proposals, invoices, all of those things. Like I think people can potentially almost overthink, but yeah. Yeah. Like how, how do you, how, do you ju- how did you approach that the first time? Like, did you just like Google like contract proposal templates and then just go with the first thing or were there any gotchas that you would call out? Yeah. I mean, there is like, there's a proposal and an invoice. And if you're using fresh books, like as, which is the most basic accounting software, there's invoicing in there. So you like, you can't mess it up. It's like telling you what parts to fill in. If you're going to just do no software and do a Google doc, then you need to like do a Google image search of what invoices look like. So you make sure you have all the components that are like there. Cause like a lot of times people send me an invoice and then they don't have like where to pay them. And I'm like, hello, like, (laughs) where do I send this? I just send it, like, just shoot up into the air and hope you catch it. Like I need to know. Um, or like some people I'll be like, okay, we have to send your account and like your routing number in your account. And they're like, no, that's private. I'm like, no, it isn't. How do you think wires get sent? It's like your social security number is private, but like, this is, you know, whatever's on the check, like if you have those physical checks, like the nineties, it will say like the, the account number and the routing number that's public information so that people can mail money to you over the internet tubes. So I would do that. And then. You know, when you're reading, they're probably going to send you their MSA. If they're a grown-up company, they probably already have like a legal thing. Um, it's all usually very standard stuff. Like, you know, we'll fire you instantly if there's a breach of contract. And that's usually like, you know, gross misconduct, like sexual harassment or theft or sharing confidential information. You know, it's all like very obvious if you're a human who's not a psychopath to like avoid those types of mm-hmm. breaches of contract. That's totally fine. Like, don't fight people on that. I would watch out for, and you'll probably have to send a normal NDA. Like you're not going to share, you know, private information. Um, I would watch out for non-competes. So like I did have one founder, I did like literally a one day workshop with him and he wanted me to sign a two year non-compete in the like day day reporting space. And I was like, yeah, no. Whoopsies. Yeah. That happened. <laughs> or some people will send you an NDA like way prematurely. So like, I had one guy, he's like starting a company. He's really young and like junior. He wanted me to like review his pitch deck for like to apply to an accelerator. And he wanted me to like sign his NDA. And I'm like, no, sorry. <laughs> like basically what you're saying is like, and I didn't even know what his business idea was. So I'm like, okay, so you're probably building a startup that everyone else is building. And so you're saying that you're going to come and sue me if you think that, that I like spoke about your idea to some, I'm like, I don't know, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so just be mindful of those non-competes, I'd say. That's like the thing that, and they're also very hard to enforce. Oh, I know. And I think I think a lot of them are potentially going away too. I've seen a bunch of news about uh, a proposal to completely get rid of non-competes or at least the majority of them. So we'll see if that yeah. lasts, but that'd be a big win if if uh, those went away. And Can we- typically, in, one second on yeah. non-compete, usually it's like a specific company. So it's like, you know, when we worked with Apple Tools, we agreed that we would not work with like these three competitors during the time and six months after. Like, that's totally fine to like call out specific companies that you won't engage with at the same time. Um, but yeah, like can't do like blanket industry, like broad industry non-competes. That's crazy. right. Right, right, right. Hundred percent. Let's um I want to make sure we cover a couple of things. So uh before we go into questions. And so the first one is market rate ranges per hour. So what are you seeing in terms of market rates for different levels of um of expertise for product marketers? Yeah. 
Yeah. So, you know, I work internationally. So like all of our clients are SF based, like mostly US and San Francisco, New York based, but I do work with teams, you know, unfortunately in the, this new world of pandemics, like everyone, the remote world, everyone's competing with everyone. And so, you know, include, I would say like, and these are big ranges, so I almost feel like they're not helpful, but for a product marketing associate, someone who probably has like two years, you know, of relevant like tech experience is earning 50 to 90 per hour. And like, that's a big range and like quality will kind of speak for itself. But like at this stage, you're probably like, you can manage yourself, you're mature, you are a great writer, but like, don't know how to get your own clients per se, or like, you're not going to be able to lead like a whole project or go toe to toe with a VP of sales or something, you know, then in the product marketing manager role, I'm seeing about 90 to 120 per hour. This is someone who can, um, this is someone who can like lead a product launch on their own. They can do all the copy. They can like be project managing and like giving direction to other people, even if they're not like you know, their boss per se, but can certainly be organizing everyone. Then if you're like product marketing director, I would say this is like, you are leading all of the strategy, reviewing all of the quality of work, interfacing closely with like other directors or higher like product people, salespeople, founders, that's probably in the 120 to 200 range per hour. And then if you're like VP level, you can easily get 200 or more, but those projects are probably like less volume. It's like advisor role, like strategic stuff. Maybe it's like five or 10 hours a week. You know, no one's going to pay a PMM VP to like crunch copy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, when you first start out, are you keeping those hours like kind of, in, or excuse me, those like ranges in the back of your head, but then quoting based on project? Because I've also seen some conflicting comp, uh, arguments of like, should you charge hourly? Should you charge project base or just like a flat fee for like an extended period of time? Like, how, how do you think about that? I think projects fees can be tricky because scope always changes, especially for product marketers, like blog posts, content writing, it doesn't really change. It's like, we're making an ebook. It's going to be 20 pages. Like it's very straightforward or we're writing blog posts, 1200 word blog posts. There's going to be 10 of them. There's like not a lot of surprises, but product marketing and like these more kind of ephemeral, like strategic roles. It's like product launches never go on time. I have never ever seen a product launch on time. I have launched over 50 products. Not one has ever gone on time. So you're going to be like, if you charge per project and then it's like delayed for three weeks, you just added three weeks to your work, you know? So I, I'm like, I caution people. I, I like starting out on retainers. It's like, you've got me for 20 hours a week for four months. If scope changes, priorities change, I can be flexible and fluid with you. You don't have to worry about like me nickeling and diming them, but I've hedged my risk where I'm not like find myself working 80 hours instead of 40 hours on this project to like get it done. And it's also like, what is done or good look like? You know, my husband's a data scientist. He writes code. It either works or it doesn't. The key either unlocks the door or it doesn't. Like it's very definitive if it's done. <laughs> my work is more subjective and it's like, Hey, all this copy is done, but like the founder has like totally different taste and they would just do it differently. You know, what is done? It's very subjective. So if you're new and you're like starting out, I recommend retainers and not project-based fees because you can just find yourself like your per hour rate, just like plummets as scope changes, but uh, you know, up to other people. I like that. I like that idea just of, uh, of like 
that almost like protects you from like having to like keep going like revision after revision after revision yeah Yeah. while you're gathering intel so like you know i know someone who kind of does this like specific storytelling framework and it's like it's the same template it's the same process yeah go ahead and like charge that per project once you've figured it out but like if you have work that's just changing i don't know it's hard it's very hard even even after i've done and for like we've done it for like 40 companies it's just it's hard to properly scope it the last thing that we'll jump into before we go into questions is just like ending the engagement okay so what are some best practices that you can share around like finishing up a contract yeah so i always do a wrap-up report like and i like to keep track of that this was the less hard lesson learned start the wrap-up report at the beginning of the engagement and as you deliver things just write it like add it to the list with a link if you are an individual consultant, you're probably working within their Google Drive. So make sure you have copies of things too, so that you kind of like know what's going on, at least finish work. Like, oh, I produced an ebook or I did, I don't know, I did this blog post, like whatever, or a sales deck, like try to keep a copy for yourself. So definitely send them a wrap up report. It's a great, you know, reminder of all the value you created because it's so easy to forget about what happened. Even like for me, when I did the work, I'm like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about that thing. I recommend sending the wrap-up report, not just to like the direct point of contact, but other people that you interface with so that, you know, cause people leave companies so, like so often that you really want to try to build relationships with like several people within a company, not just one. So that if they leave, you're not like, you know, SOL there. And this wrap-up report, you know, you can encourage them to share it around the rest of the company, but it happens very often where like whoever your point of contact is will claim all your work for themselves. So like, that's just what happens when you're a consultant or an agency. And so like, I like consult at this one company, the VP of sales, like leaves to go somewhere else. And is like, Hey, like, can, can we talk? Like, I'm interested in this. I heard you might've done some of this. And I'm like, Oh yeah, we did. Blah, 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 blah. And they're like, Oh, I thought that was all like that team. I'm like, no. Nah. So, you know, you need to like do a little bit of advocating and it's a dance. Like you can't be like taking credit for all your point of contacts work or like trying to supersede them, but you do want to make sure that the people you work with understand like what value you did. So um, try to get a testimonial and a case study. Um, I find that even though it feels tacky, no one ever actually writes a testimonial themselves. You write it and then they tweak it. I've tried so many times to get them to just write it because it feels tacky to write it for them. But like literally just like the product launches that never go on time. No one ever actually writes the testimonial, but if you're like, Hey, you know, feel free to write whatever the heck you want, but like, here's the sample. If you just want to like do some editing and people usually are like, yep, that's good. They move on. And then, you know, specifically asking for referrals, just like in marketing with like a clear call to action, you just have to be like very on the nose, like, you know, about what you want. It's like, Hey, you know, I really enjoyed working with you. Like understand there's not a lot more to do. Is there anyone else you can think of that I might be able to do a similar type of project with still like asking specifically for referrals. And then if you do want to do like some kind of referral commission or like affiliate type thing, make it seem official in a PDF. I've said it to people many times and it never really like leads to anything. And then as soon as I like made a one page PDF and emailed people, I was like, this is our agreement. They're like, oh, and then they send you more work. So just like make it official. Um, when you, when like, you say that, you mean like, like if you refer if someone me refers some- to business. Yeah. I mean, you have like your close friends who will just refer you business. Like, you know, of course they will. 
but then there's people who like, you, you know, you're a loose connection, you're a loose tie. You're not mm-hmm. really top of mind for them, but it's like, Hey, you know, I give a 10% like commission, um, on like projects that close from like a direct referral from you or mm-hmm. 5% commission or something like that. And it's sad, but like humans are extrinsically motivated and it just like is makes them much more likely to refer you, even if they like you and they like your work and they think you're smart. Like they just don't think to do it unless mm-hmm. you put skin in the game. And so. Got it. Is, is that pretty typical then like 10% of like what you end up signing like a, a contract for? I think it's typical and generous. Like I think people would probably do it for 5% or you could just be like, Hey, a hundred dollar gift card, like mm. Amazon gift card or like, it doesn't necessarily have to be a percentage, but like it has to be like real. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. Don't think to do it. What about uh, with, you mentioned Jasper, ChatGPT, all these like AI writing tools. How, how specifically are you using them in your work? I use them all the time. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not like, Olivine, we have a very high bar for quality and personal experiences and stuff. So like, it's not like, oh, make Jasper write me an 800 blog post, word blog post and then publish it. But it's like getting ideas going, um, especially for products. Like we work with very technical companies. Like we're working with this one company, Floodbase. They use satellite imagery with like machine learning, like OC, like visual machine learning to like predict floods. And then they like do actuarial like insurance stuff. And it's like two difficult industries. And sometimes like you only have so much time with the founder and the founding team to like understand how this stuff actually works. So I usually ask ChatGPT now and it just like tells me. <laughs> How this stuff that's works. so that's so clutch especially too because we're writing like all of these i mean we're expected to write very in-depth messaging copy that's very extensive yeah. and if you're hopping in cold to like a brand new industry like you're just not going to be able to confidently do that yeah and you know you have to have some judgment like i asked ChatGPT how many bears russia has sent to space and it said it sent two bears belka and strelka and i'm like well I don't think any bears have actually gone to space. Okay. But you know, you can, it can just, I use it as like the, like a brainstorming buddy who like never has to pee and never has to go to a meeting and like never gets tired of my stupid questions. This is more, more generative for me. Or if I've write, written like a clutch blog post that I'm like, this is the money maker. Mm. Then I write Jasper and it like improves the SEO and writes an intro and a conclusion. And I'm like, okay, cool. Oh, nice. Okay. That's <laughs> solid. The, on, the only time I've yeah. ever used, so I've used ChatGBT a couple of times um, when I'm building out like a messaging framework and I need like, you know, I need like the two sentence, like punchy, like value pillar theme or whatever. And so I'll like, okay, that's like what I'll end up like brainstorming. And then it might give me something and I'll be like, all right, make it, make it a little bit punchier or something like that, or use shorter words. And that's, that's pretty much been like the extent of how I've used it. But I also don't, if I, if I were responsible for more like long form blogs, I would totally uh, use it a lot more extensively than that. Um, I'll paste, I did like a side-by-side in one of our recent newsletters on GPT versus Jasper versus copy.ai. So you can look at how to check out. Jasper, you should know, it's powered by GPT-3. It's just Mm -hmm. like a layer of marketing focused prompt engineering on top of GPT. So like, in fact, I I do kind of worry about Jasper long-term. I think they probably raised too much money and- now that ChatGPT is open and people are learning their own prompt engineering, I'm not sure how long they'll be in it, but 
it's useful for now. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so many fun AI writing tools right now. It's actually kind of crazy. Um, yeah. that's that's rabbit hole. We can talk about that another day. I think there's a okay. uh, one other question in the chat that I wanted to. Uh, so JJ asked, uh, seems like the main benefits of freelancing versus full-time corporate gigs are more freedom and control over your time, dot, dot, dot. What are the downsides? For example, yeah. taking vacation means not getting paid. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a certain level of risk. I think the best freelancing situation, and this is like completely unfair, is like to have a partner who like share, like who has, you know, when I started freelancing, my husband worked at American Express. He had like a decent salary. You know, I ultimately ended up making more cash than him, but he had like our healthcare and just like the steadiness of, uh, which is like a great part pairing up, you know, it's definitely harder if you're single. So I'm like, I, I feel for single people, like it's just harder to take that risk on. Yeah. I mean, the downside is like you, if you don't have a savings built up or you don't have the kind of risk tolerance of riding the storm, you end up like overbooking yourself. And then when you do have a little period, you don't actually rest because you're just like, oh my God, when am I going to sleep again? Oh my God, when am I going to eat again? Oh my God, when am I going to sleep again? And so like, you, you know, you have to have the the risk tolerance and like the kind of self-respect to say like, no, I'm busy. And you have to like kind of trust the universe that like more opportunities will come. And that's really difficult to do and like a little bit woo-woo. Um, but yeah, you just kind of have to like be, try to be steady. And something we didn't talk about is like a billable hour as a consultant and in-house are not the same. Do not think that because you worked 40 or 50 hours in-house that you're going to be able to bill that many as a consultant, you will die because, you know, the billable hours don't include sales calls that don't close, writing proposals that don't get signed, sending invoices, following up when people inevitably don't pay posting on social to make sure your pipeline's packed, like all that stuff takes time. So even among myself and like scrappiest, hardest working people I know, 32 hours is about the max. So just realize that like when you worked in house, you were moseying in, you got a, you like got a coffee, you got a snack, you went to lunch, you went out to coffee with friends. Like <laughs> that's not what happens when you're consulting. So you gotta like have the wherewithal to like, cap it and trust that the work will be in. I mean, not getting paid for vacations, I think is a little bit like a, uh, like it's own your, in your own head. Um, because like, if you're making a lot more money than you were making before you are getting paid for vacation, like, you know, or some people are like, Oh, um, you know, but what about health insurance? I'm like, okay, health insurance is $800 per month. Are you now making more than $800 per month right. as a consultant? I was making a lot more. So it's like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, part of that is just in your head of like, oh, my expenses have gone up by $800 per month, but it's like also your income potential has gone up by a lot more. So again, if you have a partner who has health insurance, like that makes that stuff easier. But I just feel like people are like strangely attached to these certain benefits that you can still get as a consultant. You just have to like set them up for yourself. Right. I just, I, I would really urge anybody who uh, wants to dabble in freelancing or consulting, like just try like a really short project even like while you still have a full-time gig, you know, and uh, see if it's for you. It's a learning process, just like anything else. So if you like join a, like a new company or you like uh, are dabbling in like a new function or whatever, like 
the first time you probably do it is probably not going to be ideal. You know, you probably won't get paid as much. You probably are going to stumble through like the actual process of like getting stuff signed. Um, you know, it just won't be ideal. And then you'll over time, gradually, just like anything else, you'll get a little bit better at it over time until, you know, you get potentially more clients. And then, then you're faced with the situation of like, okay, I feel really good about this new situation where I can earn a lot more money. I'm going to now yep. take this path versus like, uh, I've never done this before. Should I go and do it? Like just have patience and, you know, trust yeah. the process. Oh, can I add two more things? Yes, absolutely. One is like, as you get busy, like, let's say you have a full-time job and you're moonlighting and you're like, oh my God, I, I always outsource my personal life before I start kind of bringing on other work partners. So it's like, hire a cleaner, get meals delivered, all that stuff. Cause that stuff's really easy to spin up and spin down, but it's like really hard to kind of enroll someone like as a partner with work. So mm. definitely like source your life, even if it means you're kind of breaking even, but you're like building up your portfolio. So it's like, okay, I spent more money on these extra things. Cause I like couldn't keep up, but now I'm building up a portfolio and I'm learning the process. So like, that's something you can do. And then do not work with assholes. You will regret it. It will suck the life out of you. If they're an asshole at the beginning, they're definitely going to be an asshole later on when shit's hitting the fan and then the product's not launching on time or like whatever was going on. So it's just like, just don't do it. It's it's just, it's never worth it. The whole point of freelancing and being a consultant is to have your own freedom and flexibility and control over your destiny. Do not work with assholes. And like, let's all collectively agree not to work with assholes so that all the assholes in the world have no one to work with. <laughs> Amen. I love that. Ray, this was this was super, super helpful. I learned a lot. I'm sure a lot of the folks in the chat uh, learned a lot. I'm sure the people that listen to this on the podcast are going to get a lot out of it. So um, I hope so. let everyone know where they can follow you because I've, I've also gotten a lot of value just from following uh, your Twitter as well. Oh, my tweets. I'm bad at Twitter. I'm learning how to Twitter. I love sharing juicy, like hard hitting stuff. I'm an open book. So we have a newsletter and Olivine Substack. So you can find us at olivinemarketing.com and find like the newsletter. I'm on Twitter as Rachel Lambert, but it's spelled funny. It's R-A-E-C-H-E-L Lambert. Those are kind of the early places to get in our loop. If you're looking to do some writing, we are accepting some guest author posts. I'm not actively hiring at the moment, but you know, who knows whenever you're listening to this and in the internet tubes could be another time. So I hope to see you all around. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored you invited me. Of course. Thanks. All right. Okay. Later, everyone. <laughs>